going to preach on all three of the readings, which I normally do. I've told you this a long time ago that uh, uh, some people who teach, I have never learned anything. This is a public admission, which will be recorded. I've never learned anything from any class, for the most part, that I took on how to preach. And the reason, the reason I did, I mean, there are just a lot of things that in the groves of academe, people say that d really don't work. So uh, there it is. For example, there's a strong belief that you should never tell jokes when you preach. Right? Or use humor in preaching. And maybe it has to do with a certain species of preaching, which is characteristic of a, a group that I'll speak of in just a, a minute or two. So I want to speak about what does it mean to be saved? How do Episcopalians understand what being saved is? And then I want to speak about pluralism, mainly pluralism in the church. And how do we come to grips with and understand pluralism in the wider culture, in institutions, and in our families? Different ways of doing things. What does Paul have to say about this in Romans? About uh, within the body of Christ, there are plural views, even in about um, 50 A.D., 48 or 50, when he wrote uh, Romans. And then, what do we mean when we speak of the idea of um, the, how do we understand and model God's forgiveness in the world? And maybe we get a little something about that from the gospel, where we have um, a parable of Jesus um, and uh, a teaching of Jesus about forgiveness. And this is part of that special M that we have talked about before because it occurs only in Matthew's gospel, this uh, thing, this story and this, this parable. So let me say first something about the idea of salvation, not uh, in terms of the Exodus story, which I'll speak about, but just in general terms. Uh, in the Episcopal Church, First of all, it's important to say something about different models of, of Christianity and church. Uh, the Anglican church is a church model. There was a German theologian many years ago named Ernst Trelch, and she wrote, he wrote a book called Models of the Church, the sect, the, and this is a church which means that in some ways, in its overweening sense and in periods of its history, uh, the church has emphasized perhaps too much the importance of the church or the centrality of the church or the church is the source of salvation. But it's important to be part of the church. And the church has something to do with certain practices certain ways of relating to one another, and certain things that we hold in terms of the hierarchy of values that are important on a regular basis. One of them, of course, uh, is the liturgy, doing the liturgy publicly, you know. 
what was a powerful thing for me as a late in my late teens and what uh, caused me to become an Episcopalian on one level was that I realized that this was something that was way bigger than me. And my own spiritual yearnings, which were considerable, and my own uh, view of the world when you're 19 is considerable in terms of how you think about it yourself, right? The center of the universe. And I realized that this business of the church was much bigger and had a long history. So I began to realize that, w that there were other people who have gone through and are going through the same things I am. And so thinking about it in community terms was very important. If you look up in the catechism of the Book of Common Prayer, there's no reference in the catechism to salvation. There is to redemption. And redemption is defined in the catechism as the act of God which sets us free from the power of evil, sin, and death. Now, there's another species of Christianity. Probably the Roman Catholic Church would tell you in, in more uh, particular terms the salvific operating of the church and why that's the thing you need to connect to in order for that to happen. In uh, Protestant Christianity or evangelical Christianity, uh, one definition would be salvation consists of the remission of sins, the imputation of Christ's righteousness, and the gift of eternal life received by faith alone apart from works. Now, Episcopalians believe that too in large part. You know, Calvinism had a big influence on the formative period of Anglicanism. And the thing about this is that there uh, are different ways of looking at this. We believe as Episcopalians, uh, we are not a confessional church. We don't uh, read the Westminster Confession and say that's what you should believe, or the Augsburg Confession, and that's what you should believe. It's all been written out. There's something called the 39 Articles, which are in the Book of Common Prayer, and many conservative evangelical Episcopalians and Anglicans would view that as our confessional statement, although it was never intended to be, and in fact it was never uh, reproduced in any prayer books until the late 18th or early 19th century. So, in terms of our understanding, the uh, 39 Articles of Religion, at least what I was taught, are uh, sort of um, uh, historical curiosities. Maybe that's too dismissive, but I would suggest that that's the case, right? So if you're a Calvinist, which John Calvin had the most influence on our tradition of any of the Protestant reformers. The Lutherans began, but then Calvinism became much more attractive to to many people. But uh, the way in which salvation is understood there is pretty rigorous. So uh, if you're the real McCoy, you have to be something I think called a tulip Calvinist. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistibility of grace, and the persistence of the saints.
right? And God has determined for all eternity who will be saved and who will be damned. So that means it's all been decided. It's kind of like Allah wrote it, right? <laughs> there is that element. I'm probably being unfair uh, in a sense. But the idea of salvation is something in the Bible that doesn't appear as often as people would like. And in Paul, uh, who had perhaps the most influence on the reformers, it's not, he doesn't really talk about it very much at all in the same sense. Now, I've said to you before that in the biblical text, in the original languages, the word for save, salvation, to save, is the same word that is used that, that also means to heal or to make whole. And so we believe that in a God who is laboring for the creation that he made and called good to become whole and now live into the promises once again. So now here's the next issue. The next issue is, and this is particularly influential, I think, in America, because uh, there, some of you may remember a, uh, we had a member of the parish for a while. I think his name was Martin Smith, and he taught theology at uh, uh, Santa Clara University. He was their resident Protestant. <laughs> and he was a, an American Baptist. He wasn't a Southern Baptist. He was an American Baptist, which is, you know, a, is a different kidney, a little more liberal. And he, he gave a talk to the clergy of the Diocese of El Camino Real and, and said that we're all Methodists now. And what he meant by that was is that the deep influence on the frontier movement of everybody and in the United States generally of these circuit-riding preachers who showed up everywhere and did all of this kind of stuff and influenced the way and the practice of understanding that brand of Christianity. And so one of the things that was part of that was the whole question of salvation understood as a personal thing. My salvation, the way in which I come to Jesus, the way in which I understand I have found my greatest place of safety and assurance, and I can now rest with some degree of comfort in my future, both here and somewhere else. So that's important. I'm belaboring all this because in Exodus today, we read something about one of the great saving events of the great tradition with a capital T that informed the way we as Christian people from early on understood salvation. It's not, uh, I'm not saying that the personal aspect of this is not important, but it's taken pride of place in terms of understanding what this means. When, when we read the story of the Exodus and what happened, it was the great understanding of God's work corporately in the with the people of God. And also urging them to now become part of the processes of salvation in the world. Now this runs counter to certain kinds of Reformation theology because it says we can't do anything ourselves to save ourselves. And there's no use about worrying, uh, you know, about what's going on. Uh, because we're going to go somewhere else, and what we need to do is get right with God now, and then we'll go somewhere else when we die. 
So why should we worry about it? I remember Ronald Reagan had a, uh, a uh, secretary of the interior named James Watt, who was a charismatic Christian. He was a Pentecostal. And he said in some press conference about, are we worried about the whales or the redwoods? He said, why, why? You know, in the end, there's no use worrying about any of these things because it's not going to make any difference. Why should it make any difference if God is going to come here and we're all going to go swooped up or it turns out that the Left Behind series is true? <laughs> right? So when we understand what that means, that's how the, we, we have to think about this. The people of Israel were saved by God. And God saved them corporately for a purpose to continue these processes. We're, we are um, partners with God. Some people get upset about that, but that's how I look at it. You know, we cooperate with the divine processes that have begun in each of us, you know. And the story of the people of Israel crossing the Red Sea and now beginning is important. And what are we going to read about? We're going to read about God's abiding presence, just as with Abraham. Abraham is God's chosen person now to continue this. He messes up. And God continues to be faithful and goes to plan B. And then the people of Israel get into Egypt uh, largely as the result of some of their own behavior. And then they continue and they mess up. And God continues on. And so there's something in these processes of how God remains faithful. But always insisting that we're part of the process. So salvation is something that, that is personal. But it is also corporate. And it also has to do with history and with the circumstances in which people in every age find themselves, you know. That's why it's not always fair to criticize preachers for talking about contemporary issues. Because that's the location for understanding how we partner with God in the processes of salvation. And when we act at our best, we always stand at some critical distance from the way in which the prevailing worldview suggests that we should behave. And this is very easy to say, but very hard to do. So think about God's saving work in some ways as uh, being part of the way things are at the present moment and being present to the world with the confidence that God's healing, saving power is available to us in many different ways, not just in terms of uh, uh, religious scruple about which way you have to do this sort of thing, you know. Uh, in evangelical circles, there's a conversation about something known as ministries of mercy and ministries of proclamation. And ministries of proclamation are understood the preaching of Jesus saving you, the need for you to be converted, and the need for you now to move forward with the assurance that you have been banked home to God. And ministries of mercy 
are those ministries that reach out in love and concern to other people, like, for example, the Santa Maria Urban Ministry and other places like this, which seek to bring some species of transformation to the way things are, and that it is animated by the fact that we believe that God is concerned about those things. So we see this starting in the Exodus story and the great movement from Egypt to the promised land and how we understand how how that works. Today Paul is talking, is in in, uh, Romans, he's writing about something that was a pastoral situation on the ground. And here's what it was. Early converts to Christianity, Gentile converts, not Jews, Gentile converts, which was his focus. Many of them had been members of uh, the mystery religions of the Roman Empire, Greek mystery religions and so forth. Or mis- mis- I can't pronounce it, but there's a church, San Clemente in Rome, that is built on top of one of these temples. Mithraic, yeah, and you can you can see that uh, there are some beautiful fragments of mosaics there. And when I was there in seminary on a scholarship in Santa San Clemente, uh, there was a Dominican priest. The Dominicans run San Clemente now, and you went along, and there was a, a partial mosaic, and there was a guy there in the mosaic who was kind of like <coughs> like this. So Father Reagan said. Uh, he was an Irish Dominican, and he said, and over here we have uh, a fragment of what's supposed to be a uh, mosaic of the Last Judgment, which means at least that nobody was bored. <laughs> <laughs> so some of the people that were part of those religions and converted to Christianity uh, had scruple about uh, a practice that had been common in the, the, the ancient world, and that was that in these temples that practiced sacrifice of animals, you know, the temple in Jerusalem wasn't the only place, the uh, meat from the animals that were sacrificed was sold on the open market, you know, for people to buy, like from the butcher. And there were some Christians who said, uh, I don't think it's appropriate for us to eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols. Somehow it just doesn't seem right, and maybe I'm putting my post-mortem bliss in jeopardy to do such a thing, and I don't want to do it. And they'd had some uh, Christian colleague who said, never mind, I'm going to have some, I'll sit down and tuck in, and I don't think it matters. So Paul was talking about a couple of things. What's, what are you able to do and what are you not able to do in this context? And wh- how do we understand solicitude for one another in terms of their views? Tolerance, we would maybe, right? So last week I talked about this, uh, uh, and I'm going to mention it again. Paul was dealing in this passage in Romans with the questions of adiaphora in Greek, matters indifferent. Right? What matters and what doesn't matter? <coughs> and how do we understand what that means? 
Some would uh, not like me to say it this way, that the, the faith and belief of the Christian church, how we understand the deep things of Christian faith, goes through some sort of continuous uh, transformation and renewal and understanding of how we think about things in a way different. In a minute, we're going to talk about the gospel, and we've got a situation there where slavery is mentioned as just an, a fact. There's no moral issue spoken about in this passage at all about slavery's uh, moral correctness or lack, right? So Paul is saying to uh, the people that he's writing to, uh, we need to be sensitive to what's essential and what's non-essential. And we need to treat our fellow Christians with some degree of charity. If somebody doesn't want to eat meat that is sacrificed, has been used in a sacrifice by a pagan religion, if they don't want to do that, don't bother them about it. And the same is true for those who eat vegetables only. Right? Anthony Burdan, in one of his first books, said, Vegans are the enemies of food. <laughs> So we need to just be easygoing about adiaphora, you know. Now, this is more important than merely the religious context or the faith and belief context or the philosophical context because you and I have to make those determinations all the time in institutional life and in our families and how we relate to one another. What is essential and what is non-essential? And how do we live with people uh, that we have to be around all the time now that are covered with tattoos? You know, are we going to do it or are we not? See? Those are things that, uh, that influence people. How do we deal with our children who may be uh, involved with people that are different than we are and that we certainly haven't approved of in the past? And what do we do? And yet, as time goes on, what we discover is that it is more difficult to disagree and dislike people different from us when we know them. Right? It's an ordinary commonplace thing, you know. And some might say, well, what in the world does that have to do with Christianity? It means that you need to familiarize uh, yourself with the belief continuously that everybody's a human being, you know. So we tend to describe people using language that sets them in a different location. And Paul is really speaking today about the continuous necessity to determine what is adiaphora and what isn't adiaphora. That's easier to say and, and hard to do than it is to do. So this morning, Matthew uh, is speaking. Uh, Jesus uh, talks in this, in this uh, section of the gospel, uh, and it's not reproduced anywhere else in the gospels. And he speaks first about how often you should forgive. And in a typical uh, Jesus way, it is filled with a hi hyperbole, Right? Should, Peter says, should I forgive them seven times? And Peter uh, and Jesus says, no, you should forgive them 77 times. So then it's juxtaposed with a story, a parable that Jesus tells uh, about a, 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 a big cheese 
who has slaves. You know, all these translations and the other English translations translated that word servant. And in Greek, doulos means slave. It doesn't mean servant. It means a slave. And in the ancient Near East, there were slaves who were enormously powerful, who uh, administered property and money and resources in the service of their masters. And this guy was one of them who had a lot of money, uh, 10,000 talents. I can't remember what a talent is. Ernest may know anymore, but it was a huge amount of money. 10,000 talents was like a Silicon Valley billionaire, you know? But he's behind in his payments to the master. And so the, man is, the master calls him to pay up, and he can't, and he pleads with him to let him off the hook so that he'll pay him back, and he'll, be, he'll get square with him. And the master lets him do this. So then this guy goes to one of his underlings, another slave, who owes, I think, a hundred denarii, which is a lot less <laughs> than a talent, right? And he said, pay what you owe me. And he said, I can't pay you now. If you give me a little break, I'll be able to, to get even with you. And he treats him very rudely and uh, abusively, and he throws him into jail. And so some of the other slaves go back to the master and they say, this is what's happened. So the master uh, is very angry with the big cheese slave and he uh, has him tortured. Does that ever make you feel uncomfortable that Jesus would speak a parable like this about somebody that the master would have tortured? You know? So in any case... Uh, he tells the disciples as a teaching moment that uh, you need to uh, practice compassion and sympathy for people. That that's the way we do this. And that Christian people, uh, Jesus wouldn't say Christian people, but that Christian people in some way need to uh, understand that in their dealings with one another. The reason I'm belaboring this is we're participants in the saving work of God, the saving, reconciling work of God in the world. And so the processes of salvation are at work in a community that practices love, justice, forgiveness, and peace. And that it's a way in which we understand the need to do this in a way that uh, is important not only in the big uh, issues of, of our religious faith and belief, but in all aspects of our lives, you know. There's a lot of people that are very concerned about the salvation of others, particularly if they believe that the, these others are doing things that they don't approve of, or that they happen to be very rigorous about a certain amount of things like this, you know. I know I'm very particular about these things, but I just want to make sure that people do things right. <laughs> have you ever heard that I've been a pastor for 40 years and I've heard people who are on all kinds of church organizations who speak this way you know I want to make sure that things are done right or they may even 
take the real moral high ground in saying, I'm doing this because I want to ensure that uh, we're all on the same page with regard to honoring God. And this is what we ought to do. Don't know what to tell you about it, you know. But Jesus said, no, the better way is to practice sympathy and compassion and do what the master did. You know, if you want to go like the master is God and the, you know, God unconditionally loves, accepts and forgives us. Some people would prefer not to, to say it that way because they believe that God does do those things only if we dot the I's and crosses the T's, you know. So once you're saved, you can't really now float down the stream of grace because you've got to make sure you don't step on any eggs on the way from life to the other place, right? So that's why I'm a great supporter of N.T. Wright's views that it's not some other place that we're working this out. It's here. And we're talking about the kingdom here that you and I are part of and that we have been initiated into through the sacramental processes of the church which is the vehicle by which we understand how that works in sort of mechanical terms, that we're part of that, you know, and our participation in that is therefore important. So maybe the best assignment this week would be just to, to work on thinking about how you are part of the processes of salvation, uh, that no matter what particular branch of tradition or practice you're part of, uh, it should always be uh, practiced with some degree of charity and that we can, should be open to plural ways of understanding how God can be accessed. And so uh, that's what we need to do. Amen.